Welcome to Usual Pets, an arts and poetic philosophy podcast with hosts Richard Gilbert and Jeff Cairns. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to usualpets.com. Today, we will be coursing around the never-ending fullness of zeros, the entryway to artful process through tension and release. How to write a first word? Does capitalism foster creativity? And creative spaces in virtual worlds. As well, Richard offers Test Pattern, our WTF for this episode. We also offer the accompanying music to the episode's video, Pollinators, available to our patrons. To enjoy that fully, Please support Usual Pets at patreon.com forward slash usual pets. And now, test pattern. We're going on a journey to take a travel, take a journey, going on a journey on the circle line, O's linked through O's. The wave-bending train leaves the station, trailing a faux impressionist gauze in flight. Through the tissue paper of enforced double-think social twilight, a curving circle each station, O's on the line, flows onward toward, won't you escape the loss? Toward this moment with me, A circle of knowing falls into a pool. Skin-tight rhythms drum and thrum. Be mine, be mine, be thou, be thine. The knowledge carriage carries loss. A scene follows some scene beyond. Known through love, beyond. There's no going back, and we all know it. Two. Imagine if your mind was the first word in the dictionary every day with every look and look up. The print mostly too fine to read something about aardvarks to zebras, hemispheres of dawn and dusk, mass and gravity. Trying to define finally the human. This metaphor quickly collapses, lest it become passé. Like the ignorant, we assume, living blind through their histories. Those mistakes we won't do. Ache, love, and breath when you are very, very lucky. The planets we spin, rings of Saturn, made of ice, bright for a billion years, Gaseous, chaotic swirls of Jupiter's methane storms falling into each other with a lover. The outer eye is seduced by the inner. If there's a goal, it only reaches further into you. More, drink more in risk of peace. Three. Gradually, then suddenly, you release yourself to be known. Among the iconoclastic plains and bush, 
cottonwoods and eucalyptus sunk into aquifers prior to drought when moist loam turns to blown sand childhood. When what you have carried and borne to be shared is given beyond doubt. The landscape seen out of corners as a horse scans, ready to run with a partner one side protects the other. As horses stand together tail to head to rest from predators, threat of the world order, pride and order through these years of increasing bandwidth Expanding the margins of the ungiven, censorship, harm of Olympic oppression. From this the poem springs that we live in a place that is not our own, and much more not ourselves, says Stevens. To encounter new wellsprings, yet to be named Well, that was an interesting journey, and I wanted to start off by talking about zeros or O's, because uh, you reference them in your WTF on the circle line, O's linked through O's, and then you go on further to talk, a curving circle, each station O's on the line flows onward toward. Well, it seems to me that there's a kind of conceptual problem with zero and it may be historical actually because i think historically the concept of being anything but zero was established first especially in the field of mathematics zero was a later concept that came to understanding you want to talk about o's uh, I call them zeros, not O's, but let's talk about that. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. So what is the feeling of O for you? When you read or heard O's on the circle line, what feeling came to you or what image came to you? The image that came to me, I suppose, was one of not going anywhere. So it seemed an odd contrast that we're on a line and yet we're not going anywhere. That's how I felt about it. But mm -hmm. I wanted to explore that a little bit. Yeah, because I think there's something more to be understood about O's than that very basic idea. I just want to touch on the origin of zero a little bit. Just before you go on, we're trying to follow a theme that we want to pick up in each episode. And the theme is... Entryways into creative worlds, right? This is right. the theme, our first theme today. Right. Entryways into creative worlds. And so we're really picking up on O's right now. Yeah. As a kind of entryway or like a portal. Right. A threshold that you were trying to go through something. Mm. That's all I wanted to say. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so just continuing then because we are definitely in that place. Okay. Uh, continuing with that, yeah. zero or any number has a concept of quantitativeness. And it's an odd thing because zero equals no quantity, if you think in terms of quantity. I think that we have to kind of shift our understanding of that a little bit, not from the perspective of quantity, but to the perspective of quality. Okay. 
And I think zero better represents a quality than it represents a quantity. The quality being absolute potential and absolute encompassment of everything possible. So it's an extremely expansive concept, I think, zero. I think initially my reading your poem and hearing you speak, I had the initial idea that it was an odd thing to say, O's on a circle line. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to understand, well, what was that all about, the O's on a circle line? But then I just started thinking about zero a little bit more. And the idea that may be perceived as a quantity of some sort, but actually it's a quality. The quality is all-encompassing. It holds within itself everything, every potential, which would mean then that there is no limit to O. So I wanted to just get your impression on that first. Do you, how do you think of O's? Do, are they quantitative or qualitative or do you have some other way of looking at O's? I think all of the things that you've said about O's are correct, you know, like, mm -hmm. that's part of the interest of O's is that probably everything that you could possibly think of is, you know, can be included. <laughs> the concept of infinity is related to the concept of zero. Mm -hmm. In terms of talking about the line of the poem, I said the, we're going on a journey to take a travel on the circle line, O's linked through O's, O's linked through O's. And one of the obvious things about a written text is that actually we have a letter, a capital letter O. Mm -hmm. There is just an odd thing about O's. It's a letter that's perfectly symmetrical and encloses a circle or an oval. Then you can think about things like orbits and ellipses and the nature of O's as the circulation of breath. Mm -hmm. We speak and you breathe out as you're speaking until you can complete that phrase and your breath is expelled. And then you take this in-breath, you do that again. And same thing musically, like if you're playing a wind instrument, there's a feeling of the circle line or the journey of O's. It's a metaphor. It's not really mm -hmm. exactly yeah. the thing. And so it's funny when you think about O's as empty or infinite, that at least through our whole life, we're doing that thing, you know, taking in energy really mm -hmm. to invigorate our system and using the oxygen and then expelling the CO2 and et cetera. And we're doing that all the time. We're on this journey, like all the time, but it's also a circulation where you're also returning all the time. But then you're also getting somewhere or ending up somewhere, but then you have to return, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think the O is almost biological. How true is it of all the life on this planet that in some way the various life forms that we know that are around us are actually breathing through their life? Plants breathe. They take in CO2 and expel oxygen, for instance, and mm -hmm. photosynthesize. I mean, there's this inspiration-expiration that's happening all the time. And so a line of poetry or a phrase, it's very musical. And it's always, in a sense, an O. There, there's an onus, an onus on the words to go somewhere. Each line is its own journey in return. Or it returns by ending. And then there's lineation, you know, there's a next line or something like that. I'm not really answering your question very well, but you said, is it a quantity or quality? Mm -hmm. You pointed out that, you know, the zero aspect or even the infinity aspect is quantity, quantity of all and nothing. 
But then you say, well, but there's also a quality part, the quality. That's the content that's fulfilling that rhythm or fulfilling that cycle. Mm -hmm. It's a little abstract what I'm saying, but I'm kind of agreeing on both parts of it that the content part is quantity. It's measurable. I mean, how many syllables or how many notes or what's the melody or something mm -hmm. or the rhythm. But then there's also something that's qualitative. Where were you going with it? Well, where I was going was that the quality of zero is an all-encompassing quality. In other words, it's potential. Mm -hmm. It's not actual, it's potential. Okay. So once something becomes potential, it derives from zero. It mm -hmm. derives from the all-encompassingness of zero mm -hmm. and becomes defined and therefore is not zero anymore. It becomes something else. That's what I wanted to say about the quality of zero. But let me just sort of step back a moment. All right. I like what you just said. It's, yeah. It takes me into a very obscure yet interesting abstract space. You know, right, right. You know, like you said, it's potential. The zero aspect. Right. The O, not the circle, but the O, o. itself. That's how every single line of poetry, it starts with potential. Right. Yeah, or I saw it in a dream or something. Yeah, so you don't start yeah. with content. You're always starting with potential, potential, right? Right. And are you thinking of that musically too? Well, no, I, I wasn't really. I mean, it could be applied to almost anything, yeah. uh, that whole concept. But there's another aspect of O's that I wanted to give you a quote from Emerson that mm. it looks at O's from a different point of view. And I'm not sure that Emerson was looking at it from the point of view of the potential of an O, mm -hmm. uh, rather the developmental aspect of something more concrete, perhaps. The quote is, The life of a man is a self-evolving circle, which, from a ring imperceptibly small, rushes on all sides outwards to new and larger circles, and that without end. The extent to which this generation of circles, wheel without wheel, will go, depends on the force or truth of the individual soul. So this imagery obviously is, is somewhat related to a ripple, mm -hmm. a disturbance on a flat surface that defines itself as a disturbance, but it rushes outwards in all directions and sometimes is repeated within itself. It's a holistic thing in a sense, mm -hmm. but it becomes further defined as it expands and eventually it becomes something quite different actually. Mm. Now, your reference to O's on a circle line seems to be something different than that. Can you make a comment on that? What he's talking about is connected to morality or at least an ethics of living or ethics of character or even character development. He starts off the life of a man, meaning person at this point. Mm -hmm. Person, yeah. Is a self-evolving circle, self-evolving from a ring imperceptibly small. It seems like he's describing this resonant vibratory growth of right. the character of a person because he says the extent of which this generation circles wheel without wheel will go depends on the force or truth of the individual soul 
probably the contemporary listener will have some issues with the individual <laughs> soul and... Well, there might be, yeah. The force or truth of the individual soul. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of romantic notion. Romantic and chivalrous. There is a way that my poem is doing some work mm-hmm. that's similar to what Emerson is doing. I feel like it's a judgment when he says, the generation of the circles depends on the force or truth of the individual soul. That's interesting in that it reminds me of Nietzsche, it's a matter of will, willing. A force is a potent energy of exploration or of, uh, what is he really saying there? Don't you think he's kind of referring to that individual soul and the truth and force of it being seen from outside, seen from another? Well, he's looking at it. He's making a comment on a process. Yeah, yeah. But he does say that. But the process, it seems to me, has to be observed. Depends on the force or truth of the individual soul. So that Mm. seems very much a self directed. It's about how you're working your own phenomenal experience. That's how I take it, anyway. Mm. The direction I might take it is that let's talk about the force of knowing versus something that might be called the force of unknowing and potential, which is kind of where you Mm -hmm. started. Mm -hmm. There's some kind of tension Mm -hmm. and release, Mm -hmm. some kind of interplay Mm -hmm. that's really dynamic. Mm -hmm. How you decide who you are, how you decide what you know and how you know has resonance, has ripples. There's a ripple effect, Mm -hmm. especially when we're younger, maybe, maybe all the time. We're building and discarding and testing our philosophy of life. Mm -hmm. What we feel is ethical for us, what our values are, let's say. Mm -hmm. Emerson seems to be in that track of depending on the force of that effort. Right. Something can grow and widen and maybe affect the world. Mm -hmm. There's a, a challenge involved there. What do you think about that? Because he uses the word, the truth of the individual soul at the end of his, the force, so the force of that is dictated by the truth of the individual soul. Truth being an empirical thing? What is he talking about there? I mean, what is truth? What truth is he talking about? When we just casually say the truth of my soul or what's the truth of your soul, we know that that's real. That has... Not empirically mean. Empirical would mean it it has a reality outside of your experience or my experience of that. Yeah. But every single blues song or probably every single pop love song that's ever been written (laughs) is about that. Right. So maybe we can't nail it down philosophically, but it makes sense. It just makes sense to the heart. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a heartfelt thing when in love, when I say, you know, you've touched my soul or I feel your soul or something like that, or it's got soul. So this is good because the soul has a good O sound in it. It's got an O-U <laughs> in the center, so it's really vowel-y. Mm-hmm. It's round. It's, you know, it's gorgeous. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you got passion, you got seduction. It's a force, right? So the soul force. So there's something about that that is, these O's aren't empty at all. Right. There is energy there in the soul, in the O's. Another aspect of zero is its 
negativeness. So people often conceive of zero as meaning nothing. Yeah. Right? Mm. But what is nothing? We have to define what is nothing at that point. Nothing seems the absence of anything. But in fact, I think it's the opposite. You already have to have anything before that. Before that, yeah, right. right. So It's a tautological trap. Yeah, yeah, it's a trap, but it's something that people have really acquainted themselves with, that concept that mm-hmm. O, or more properly zero, mm-hmm. o, o, not the letter O, but the number zero. Uh, the zero-ness. Uh, zero-ness, of, it's a quality of nothingness, but nothingness meaning the absence of anything. This is what I was talking about. The quality of zero is, I personally don't feel that zero is the absence of anything. Mm -hmm. In fact, zero is the complete fullness of everything. That's how I think about it. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a different thing. I wanted to touch a, a little bit because we're talking about the gateways or entryways into a kind of creative world or creative process and basically the practicality of that and mm-hmm. how do you find that mm-hmm. in your life you know right and what can you do and I feel that we're just touching on this a little bit right now you mentioned tension and release right tension and release is something that has been used in creative process be it music or graphic art or just relate it's a relational kind of thing it's one thing being juxtaposed to another thing in a sense you practice haiku and and you've been doing it a long time and you've written books about juxtaposition and what is the value of that and purpose or a disjunction the feeling of the gap between. Right. Which is quite O-like or yeah, quite yeah. zero-like in a way. Configuratively, but just as a practical thing that people, anybody, can adapt to inspire something creative within their life. Mm-hmm. I think an approach to any sort of activity, being mindful about acts of tension and acts of release within that can bring you into a way of looking at that activity that would maybe take it slightly out of the mundane and possibly be more of a practice of sorts in, in that I'm not trying to turn it into a religious thing of any sort. It's just something that opens your sense of the infinite. Hmm. And this is where we are talking about the quality of O's mm-hmm. here, okay? Yeah, opening to the potential of O's. Yes, opening to the potentials of O's. You're using that word potential, like, Mm -hmm. to me, it doesn't imply the opposite. It doesn't imply actual, like usually potential is opposed or pole, you know, one pole is potential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A battery has potential and then you hook Mm -hmm. it up to a circuit, you can do things like light a light bulb or whatever your move Mm -hmm. a motor, kinetic uh, circulation. Mm But I think that the O has this kind of potential, which isn't quite, it doesn't quite have an opposite. It doesn't, you know, it's... Simply not defined. Right. I've used the term fertile void, Mm -hmm. um, which reminds me of sometimes in physics, the vacuum of space isn't really empty. There are these virtual particles right. that are appear and disappear. There's like a particle and an antiparticle, and they appear right. and disappear in, in every micro-instant, and they self-annihilate. The image of that to me is this fulmination of energy. Mm-hmm. 
it's more like a potential mm -hmm. uh, twilight zone that's somewhat between form and whatever absence of form would be. Mm -hmm. This sort of fulminating, I think spin foam is a name that is given in quantum loop gravity theory or something. Hmm. I like the word spin foam spin a lot. Foam. It sounds a little gross to me, but I think it's the foam part that throws me. Spin drift, you know, is when the waves, uh, when you get white caps on waves and there's a lot of wind, it's the, yeah. the wind is blowing that off blows the, the top. top of the white cap. It's a beautiful yeah. thing, right? right? This is just complete aside, but in the days of your of the sailing ships, the highest sail of all, you know, they had the gallants and top gallants and the royals, and there's all these names for all of the sails. Right, right. The very, very highest sail, and it was mm -hmm. called the skyscraper. Oh, is that right? And that's where we get the name skyscraper. Oh, I didn't it's know. a beautiful kind of image. Mm -hmm. The highest sail beyond the sail that was ever mm -hmm. used scrapes the sky. One way to be profound about potential is to have these interesting metaphorical poetic images. And the skyscraper is something we don't, wouldn't normally think of as a potential that catches wind, that buoys us up or bring, you know, bells out and brings us into some kind of world in which we're moving through the wind. The wind isn't, we don't create that. The metaphors can bring us into landscapes of mind. We're talking entryways of creativity. I just wanted to say, as associated to the poem, is I'm really not so interested in being creative. Right. Where creativity brings us, the skyscraper on a sailing ship, it's that extra highest place that catches that wind, that gives you just that extra little speed, that extra half knot that moves you forward into some unknown destination. So metaphorically, are you suggesting that the entryway into creativity is something that can be practically employed into everyday life and that people can enhance or expand their daily situations by doing something in particular? Absolutely. I think at some level, we're all poets. Mm -hmm. We catch the wind through metaphors of different kinds. Mm -hmm. Everything we've said today is metaphorical. Mm -hmm. O's are metaphors, you know. Yeah. Zero is we're talking about it very metaphorically mm -hmm. as a poet. You're allowed to create metaphorical images that have their own logic that doesn't seem so rational. I wrote, a circle of knowing falls into a pool mm -hmm. in the poem. A circle of knowing, that's pretty abstract and metaphorical, but it conjures up some very simple, I think, images. What falls into a pool is a stone, mm -hmm. and it ripples out. That feeling of dropping a stone into the pool with the resonance of the circles, mm -hmm. with a sense of knowing, they're combining, right? It isn't one or the other. I think the same thing with the skyscraper. It's a skyscraper of the ship that became the building that someone named knowing that sail. Mm -hmm. It has this other kind of resonance of scraping the sky. That feeling of, you know, reaching out, I'm reaching my hand up right now, kind of reaching out. You know, you watch a little kid, they have a helium balloon and they're just absolutely fascinated and they're holding onto that balloon for, for their life so that they don't want to let it go. Mm -hmm. They lose it and it's like, there it goes, it's gone. Watch it drift off into infinity of the sky. Mm -hmm. So we have this relationship to the sky, which represents the infinite in mm -hmm. some way, or there's a part of that sky feeling of uh, what can go beyond us, where we're reaching beyond ourselves. So can you kind of reel that in a little bit? Probably and, not. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, let's try because that's what this part is all about, you know, kind of talking about entryways. Let's get practical with this. Uh, we're talking about entryways to creativity or a creative process in your life. So an entryway means a process of some sort, whether it has to do with something you practically do or it has to do with a mode of thought or feeling or yeah. something like that. What could you suggest as an entryway to a creative process in your life that has some, well, I don't want to use the word benefit to it, but ultimately expansive or, or this possibility of expansion of your existence and the value you find in it? Because, mm -hmm. you know, frankly, today in June 2021, there are a lot of stifled people wandering right. around through the circumstances. Yeah. and. Yeah. And it seems to me people really need some sort of entryway. If you are willing to relax your mind mm -hmm. and have a pencil or you can speak and you have a little recorder handy that, you know, they have these apps that will turn your speech into text. Right, yeah. By relaxing your mind, we have this ability to experience the potential. Mm-hmm of the O, mm -hmm. and it isn't a zero, it's the O-ness, it's that circle line, right. let's say. Right. And you experience that potential and you can try to not jump into content. Mm -hmm. Don't jump into a metaphor. I mean, right. some things just come to you or whatever. Words don't have to follow any order. You right. don't have to make something that has utility to you at that point. Just letting a word come or arise and not having to jump to make sense of it or find the next word that always links to it. What's to me interesting is not going association, 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 content, content, content. A word can come or, an, and I'm using word like really literally, there's a word, a first word. That's it's always hard to have a first word. From that first word, you know, a series of images might come to your mind or feelings or emotions. It can take you somewhere or it might take you nowhere. And that's fine, too. So you drift back to that potential. You drift back to that, oh, and you, you have to trust it. You have to rely on that experience of potential again. Let yourself fall into the O. Oh. You are creating a potential by wanting to have form arise. You don't know what that will be. See what is made not just from my own personal will. Right, right. Metaphors, which you could call just images, mm -hmm. they will arise. Things will get put together when you're relaxing and moving back into that potential a lot mm -hmm. and not trying to hold on, not trying to get too attached to what you're writing or what words are coming out. Emerson said something toward the end about the force mm -hmm. of the soul. Mm-hmm. This is one way that the metaphors or the images that arise become really powerful. They become more powerful when you're letting go. Mm -hmm. I think something profound can really happen. Right. Something that really connects you. It's um, a bit oxymoronic because you practice a letting go of the self. Mm. It's a letting go of at least the direction or trying to rationally construct. And yet that brings you into a deeper, more poetic sense. And what I'm saying to end this little rant is that there's a tremendous sense of freedom mm. in that experience of letting go and then something is finding you and it deepens you, connects you to feel this deeper dimension to life and to the soul. Mm. 
I kind of agree with Emerson in a way, but more in a microcosmic way. Right, right. It's always rewarding. You can't not create something sooner or later by hanging out. Yeah, in that space. Yeah, I think so. So I'm talking about words because we all have them and yeah, we can use right. them. And they don't cost anything. <laughs> they really don't. In fact, I think you benefit. Yeah. Unlike capitalism, you know, you actually, I think, get more enriched by the more. Right, right. So it comes out of you. That's really good. I mean, that's practical and good. And it seems to me anybody can do that if they allow themselves that space. It's freeing. It's not just having freedom. Mm -hmm. It's not something you have. Mm -hmm. It's something that kind of comes along. Mm -hmm. Let me end this uh, part, though, with another quote that touches on what you just spoke about. This is a quote from Clarissa Pinkola Estes in her Woman Who Run With the Wolves right, right. Right, book. And she wrote, Each woman has potential access to the Rio Abajo Rio, this river beneath the river. So that's really interesting. Yeah. She arrives there through deep meditation, dance, writing, painting, prayer making, singing, drumming, active imagination, or any activity which requires an intense altered consciousness. A woman arrives in this world between worlds through yearning and by seeking something she can see just out of the corner of her eye. She arrives there by deeply creative acts, through intentional solitude, and by practice of any of the arts. Mm -hmm. Any of the arts. Any of the arts. I wrote this, which is a bit of a response to Clarissa Pinkola Estes. It is easy to distinguish between writing being and being, because writing is often a productive challenge. It usually requires effort and more seems rarely, if ever, sufficient to being. Being, on the other hand, is irreconcilable. Being is not an it or is, except through language use. Like love, being infuses our being and extends cosmically beyond the most exquisite metaphor. Words take flight, they sing to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour, Blake's expression is both evidence and proof of the power of language to surmount what seems impenetrable or infundibular obstacles between writing being and being. Words weave stories that possess the power to evoke the particular to the relative, to the universal. That's the benefit of poetry yeah, to me. Yeah. The poetry of art, it's a yeah, general it's poetry. it's a general poetry, right. And this is accessing the Rio Abayo Rio, or the river beneath the river, Yeah, is what she's talking about, right. Right? which to me is a wonderful image. It is. Yeah. The river under the river is what it means. Rio is a river. Abayo is the... Under part, and Rio means river. So it means river under the river. The river yeah. under the river, yeah. river beneath mm -hmm. the river. In that underworld, I think she's uh, drawing on Jungian process that might relate to the collective unconscious or something really archetypal. Mm -hmm. I think in her poem, she's certainly talking about archetypal images of women and the wild and natural elements of women and certainly could be Jungian. I don't actually know that.
Just for a moment, let's reflect on the wildness of underlying currents, floating through a two-minute piece of music entitled Pollinators, part of the video offered to our Patreon subscribers. Gary Snyder, in one of his essays, talked about mind is fundamentally wild in nature. What he added to that was wild in the sense of complex, interdependent, not wild in the sense of some kind of chaotic anarchism. And what he mm -hmm. said was, there's a grain to things, is how he put it. And the word grain has a craft aspect. You follow the grain. Mm-hmm. Like if you're woodworking, you can appreciate the grain of a piece of furniture. To follow that grain might be, let's say you're sculpting something out of an organic material like wood. Following that grain implies that you're working organically with the nature of the substance. There's something to the grain of things. He's saying that you can connect to that or it can come to you. In the poem that I wrote, I would like to contrast that idea of wildness as a creative, almost formless openness to the grain of things. Mm -hmm. That can be contrasted to something that's outside of ourselves that comes to us unbidden and in a sense ungiven, relating to online social media in our present moment, which could be described as an assault, an assault on our attention. Tristan Harris talks about the attention economy. 
the algorithms of social media are designed to increase our negative emotionality. They're polarizing. We're not really the consumer, we're the product. That's something that I wrote about at the end of the poem, and I'll just read the lines that relate to it. Threat of the world order, pride and order, through these years of increasing bandwidth, expanding the margins of the ungiven, censorship, harms of Olympic oppression. Then I quoted Wallace Stevens, who wrote, From this the poem springs, that we live in a place that is not our own, and much more not ourselves. That we live in a place that is not our own, and much more not ourselves. It seems increasingly difficult to understand what is ourself and what is not ourself because of the ubiquitous nature of the things that we immerse ourselves in every day almost thoughtlessly. Whether it's just the one-way aspect of TV or online stuff where it appears to be a little bit more expansive than one way, but not necessarily. It's really just our impulse to be entertained more than anything else, I suppose. But it's a little bit difficult to think about what is me beyond what I am and what I see, you know? Psychological resistance to that experience mm -hmm. of almost being crushed. It's a slow crush. It wears you down. It's quite hard to be an original self. There's so many needs from that outside in transactional world. I certainly have thoughts of that device-driven world, thoughts of repulsion to it, almost thoughts of sometimes complaint, sometimes frustration, anger at what comes in front of me, to the point where I've actually turned it off. On the screens. Yeah, know, turn just off. turn it off. You know, I did that long ago with newspapers. It was just uh, communication that I wasn't asking for mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. I asked for it because I picked it up and I read it. Right. So in a sense, that's asking for it. You know pretty much what you're getting when you go there. But here's another thing. When we go to these places repetitively, I think we are also hoping for that gem, that crystal of wonderfulness mm. that never seems to actually happen. I'm, it's almost the promise or the carrot that's dangled in front of us in these systems that something good is going to come of this. I'm not sure that that is really the design of these things, if we can call it design, and if this is what we're actually talking about. For example, social media, and you brought that up as a reference in your poem. Can those things actually represent our true nature? And how would they go about doing that? Maybe 95% or more of the feed that I see when I do check mm -hmm. is uh, people who are unknown to me or right. posts that are unknown to me. All sorts of random things. It is an assault in a way. I sometimes notice that I access that media when I'm lonely. It might be at night and I'm in bed. It's late and I'm just mm -hmm. 
I do think there is this reaching out for human contact of some kind. And I've noticed my uh, that parched feeling in the desert, that par <laughs> parched is a social dehydration, I guess. I want some kind of hydration. Mm -hmm. This isn't the best way of satisfying that. Could be better to experience my aloneness or loneliness <laughs> here, you know. Right. Feeling myself as an individual being, be here in this room with my thoughts. Or I can choose to leave. Right. What I wanted to bring up in this element of the podcast is the strong contrast between what we and others are doing, which is a form of artistic collaboration. Our attention is going into Content providers. providers, wow. Versus being a passive absorber right. of ungiven, it's ungiven givenness. You're given this stuff that you don't really necessarily want to have to be involved in, but there it's coming at you all the time. But that's that was part of the contract. I mean, yeah, we yeah. understood the contract and we accept it or we don't accept it. So, you know, when you think in terms of social media, we understand the contract and we get it. So we know that there's going to be all kinds of stuff coming at us and there's going to be a large percentage that we won't stop at. We'll just scroll by and, you know, oh, that's not interesting and uh, move on. What you said just a minute ago reminds me of the thesis of Tristan Harris. He's been pretty popular in the, mm -hmm. as a pundit addressing the problems of social media. He talks about the attention economy. Mm-hmm. His metaphor is, he said, it's like a slot machine. Every time you go online, what am I going to get? What am right, I going to get? What's my right, reward, my payoff? Right. You're putting in the coin, yeah. but the coin is attention. It's not money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's worse, he said. Am I going to see a funny image or a mm -hmm. cute video or you right. know, another cat? <laughs> right, yeah. There's a certain amount of loneliness in that. Mm -hmm. How isolated are we from each other in our modern lives? Most of the news of the world is pretty ugly and depressing and really sad. I'm not connected to those things. I can't do anything about those things. The systemic issues that I see as problems, it doesn't matter how many lights I keep off in my house or how many jet planes I don't get on. It's nice to feel ethically okay about your energy use or something, but this is not the solution. We're looking at international systemic solutions that have to do with these changes. It's not hard to feel helpless, powerless, as a self, as a human being, caught in the wheels of capitalism, of not having savings in the bank. I think they're concerns of a lot of us. I spent decades seeking to produce art as a main thing in my life and living well below the poverty line. It's stressful, you know, it's, it isn't easy to do that. So are you saying that capitalism is an artless lifestyle? I think there's an element of the materialism, the coin of the mm -hmm. realm being a transactional exchange where if you're able to do something that's financially rewarding enough in your time, to have these almost miraculous qualities, two qualities I would think of. It doesn't take that much effort, and you get free time, and you get money. I'm lucky to have the energy to enter into creative space with you or other friends. And it's not like we have a lot of time, actually. Mm. We don't have a lot of time. We're mm -hmm. doing this once or twice a week, and not for a day. It's more like for a couple of hours at a time. Mm -hmm. It's really a fine line between yeah. having just that extra amount of energy and time to be productive and being too tired and having to deal with so many other issues. So 
capitalism. That's a, a difficult area. Mm -hmm. What I imagine, I wish that young people who wanted to spend some time being creative in the arts were given a stipend every month and maybe a cooperative building somewhere near where they want to live to be able to collaborate with other artists, to be given enough money to buy material. I would like to see an artist's or artistic people's UBI. You know, I would like to see a universal basic income for young artists. Well, it sounds almost like a kibbutz only sort of focused on, you know, artistic expression, not so much communal work and right. things like that. You could maybe apply for a stipend for five years, no strings attached, no proof needed. Let's just stop there for a minute. Why would any government, and that's where this money would come from, I mean, that's the way we're set up, that's our structure, why would any government actually go that route? What value would a government actually, or what would a government have to be to find value in that? Because we're so far away from that at this point, you know. Any kind of outreach that goes to anybody has strings attached in one way or another. That sort of thing doesn't seem to exist, really. I long ago, maybe 20 years ago, maybe longer, read that, I don't know if it was Sweden or another Scandinavian country, actually has this policy. So it may still exist, I'm mm, not sure. Right. What I'm saying isn't at all anti-capitalist, mm. it's just a way of spending your gross national product on what I would call gross national quality of human development or human potential, yeah. right? They want to add back in the arts, the A to STEM, People are finding in the tech companies that creative thinking or thinking outside the box has a lot to do with intuition, intuitive process and experience of that and development of that. And maybe we can also add cultural richness, the appreciation of literature and music and dance and et cetera, that it affects you in creating psychological complexity, being able to hold several different perspectives at the same time on a particular topic drawing on other elements of the psyche and other kinds of media that might come into your mind. things that didn't exist before and not just follow some more programmatic, rational set of rules and or set of, you know, like schema. No, there's a lot of intertwined things in that statement. We can almost generalize about this that in adult life, approaching adult life from childhood, we progressively are, let's say, forced to play less, a lot less, to the point where you know, when we're spit out of the education system, in most cases, we're expected to play almost not at all. And get serious, this is business world. You know, you've got to pull your weight, you've got to make your money and show your worth and your value. And all of those things, your worth and value is measured by the uh, bottom line, basically, of what you produce in terms of the world that you're accepted into. And not many of us are accepted into worlds that value our creative input or output and nothing more, <laughs> you know? There's not many worlds that do that. So I think one of the big problems with our society, with our lives, the way where we live, 
is an abject lack of playing. We almost ascribe playing to childishness, and I think that's a big mistake with all of this. I think we do that as an excuse, because ultimately we all like playing. What playing does is it opens the field. It allows creativity. It allows exploration. It, it allows making mistakes. It allows all those things. But we're not expected or actually we're not really allowed to do that stuff in our lives. It's like the extra leisure time activity right. after everything right. else. The last thing on the value chain. Yeah, yeah. It's right. not going to generate any income. Right. So if you want to have a hobby. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. You can do a hobby. You can yeah. have your hobby. And sure. And if you don't have a hobby, by all means, go on to social networks and just flip through and that will take care of your time. You know, it's not creative, but it'll take care of your time all right. The question then would be, in terms of play, someone could say, yeah, well, I hang out on Instagram or, you know, on Twitter and yeah, it's fun for me. Well, we have to sort of differentiate between what we qualitatively call fun and what play is. These are different things. Let's pursue that a little bit. Yeah. I think fun is a judgmental word and an accumulation of our existence up to a certain point. It's like saying good or bad. It's just qualitative. I think to a large degree, our individual qualitativeness is channeled and forced in certain directions that seem to push forward the system in existence. Going outside of the system, you ultimately get unrewarded. That's where the term fun falls. It's outside the system? No, fun is absolutely channeled. It's absolutely something that the system allows. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily play. I see what you mean now. Yeah, I see what you mean. So play is just... Go and have fun. Right. The way you're using the language. Right. Go and have fun. Let's have fun. In a sense, it means entertain yourself. Be entertained. I like couching out. I mean, I, I like watching some good TV sure. and all that. Yeah, it's like taking a load off. Yeah, but you're not actually being playful, are you, when you do that? That's a good point. I, yeah, it's pleasant. Yeah, it's pleasant. The question of meaning in your life comes up flipping through channels or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a metaphor because it doesn't have to be television or even social media. Arranging your house. Not play or fun. You're trying to quote unquote have fun or catch that, you know, okay, I don't have to think about anything. It's hard to confront emptiness. It's hard to stay with all the missing things. The experience of shifting consciousness, of falling in love, all of these things broke me free of tracks that I had been programmed to follow and I broke free of those. There are other ways to live, other ways to do things. I don't know who I would have been without those kinds of experiences that popped me out. I remember thinking even way back, even by 11th grade, I am so glad this happened to me. <laughs> My parents were not so happy. Mm -hmm. I was living in some slums for a number of years, right. uh, pretty violent slums. I got really depressed for probably at least seven years uh, after that. I was isolated, alone. What happened is actually I met a guy who was a few years older than me. He had this idea based on Parisian cafe culture to start an arts cooperative. It was in Danbury, Connecticut, which was at the time really uh, violent, mm -hmm. multi-immigrant mm -hmm. factory town. Mm -hmm. I was an engine rebuilder at the time. 
living in a condemned building. <laughs> I was able to get car for 25 bucks. It wasn't running and I would mix it up. This is the level of what I, my income allowed. Right. And we started this uh, arts cooperative called The Plant. Right. We went to this place called The Brass Jail, which was a bar in the middle of downtown. And this is a really nasty kind of, at the time, downtown area. We noticed that they had a second floor and it was just closed. Mm-hmm. We asked, well, could we go look at it? You know, and oh, yeah, you can go up there. And there's just tables and chairs all piled up. But we said to the owner, if we can fill up your second floor on a Saturday night, can we use it? Will you let us? We open up and bring some waiters up there and we'll, we'll give it a try. Yeah, we explained what we were trying to do. And, mm-hmm. and sure enough, you know, it turned out that there was, we weren't alone. You really, there was probably at least 50, 70 other artists, artistic people, let's say, who were you know, similarly isolated all around the outskirts of the city, kind of scraping by. And it worked just by having that second floor on that Saturday night and the word getting out. You know, suddenly, call it kind of a party, but we made anarchic rules about how you could speak about something or talk about art. And the one aspect that really worked for us cooperatively was that there was just one rule, which is that if you wanted to do anything productive, make a poet circle, have a reading group, do something with painting or whatever your art genre medium was, you could organize it in the space of the bar, ask for people to sign a sheet or something mm-hmm. that you wanted to start right. some kind of artistic group. But there was absolutely no productive activity to happen within the space of the Saturday nights. It was purely social. We wouldn't allow any kind of hierarchy to develop. That was our job. Our position as the founders was to try to keep things as open as possible. One of our rules was that if you want to talk, you stand up and shout people down. That was how you talk. There was no order. There was no raising hands. There was no one in charge of any of that sort of thing. And it worked brilliantly. People had a lot of fun. There's a lot of relationships were formed. Intimacies were created from that. This is my first experience of real adult artistic community. It was like hell to heaven. And what did that? I mean, it wasn't anything in the capitalist zone. Although we paid for our drinks, you know. Luckily, at that time, this was possible. You do need certain requirements like the space and the place and that the fees are not too high. Mm. I went on to found or cooperate in several other arts cooperatives. It changed my life, my daily experience. Yeah. That story sort of brings to mind something closer at hand here in Kumamoto, where we live, which is an organization that puts on public events a few times a year that are mostly music-oriented. And they happen in the downtown core called Kumamoto Street Artplex. And the inception of that was an idea by a guy who is a businessman, Secondly, but he was actually a musician in the first Mm -hmm. place. He saw a kind of drought of public performance, free public performance. And he sort of had a sense that things were moving in an old school way and you had to go to an auditorium and, you know, there was all of these rules, line up in lines and do all this kind of thing just to hear some music. So he created this event, and I was around at that time when he was creating it. It's been going on for 15 or 20 years now. Every year it's been happening. Mm. It's actually become something of an establishment, which is odd, because it's almost a part of the municipal government in the city at this point. 
In some cases, if you have to travel, you get a little bit of money to cover that. Or if you need a hotel, that's all dealt with as well. It's been very successful, I have to say. I mean, uh, especially their main event, which happens at the end of the summer. They probably have 30 or 40 performing groups of various sorts. Like a festival. It's a festival, absolutely a festival. It's just opening the public up to being able to experience so many different creative things in one setting. When you said that your creation of this space in Danbury, Connecticut, blossomed in a certain way, I was thinking to myself, well, gee, I wonder how this event in our city now Mm -hmm. has blossomed. Has it actually promoted anything within the public, the general public, to be inspired by? Or, you know, not just blatant entertainment, which I'm sure a lot of it is, but... It's a good question. Our first arts Mm co-op produced three arts festivals Mm. in two and a half, three years that I remained in Danbury. Mm -hmm. Why did that become a goal of this group? People wanted to present their art and to share it. You know, when you're talking about the Artplex event, referencing back to the plant, what I'm talking about was in the late 70s. Mm. This was, I built my first PC, I think it was in 86 or something. Mm -hmm. There was no dial-up or anything like that, nothing at home. That's part of why I think there was a big crowd at the Brass Jail Bar. Mm, Right. The quality of interaction and the type of interaction, quality meaning social quality... When you have a bunch of, you could say, outliers or creative people, they're out of place a lot anyway. And this is, again, referencing capitalism. What people really want to share is in the meat market of the bar. Mm -hmm. It wasn't ever meant to last. There wasn't some thought, oh, this is a good idea. Let's turn it into a production that makes money or that gets bigger. And so we can get something out of it. We can get some exchange. It's just a social thing. That's why it works so well that we kept it that way. It's not meant to be some kind of permanent institution. It's a floating institution. Yeah. These days, people are mm-hmm. virtual. You can go into any cafe and almost everyone's on their phone. Right, yeah. They're connected to something, but it's like they're also isolated from each other in physical space. Yeah. I feel lucky, in a way, not to have had that seductive attraction mm-hmm. or option yeah. at that time because I don't think it would have worked for very long. We're luckily able to sit together in a small studio right? and do something virtually and communicate to other people virtually. It's a reaching out to some kind of community. Maybe there are other people out there, listeners. Maybe we're more like you and maybe you're more like us. And maybe it's good that we can share these wacky things we're talking about that are just coming out of our brains. Mm-hmm. Is there a way through virtual spaces that anyone can feel inspired or transformed? Right. One thing I'd like to say to listeners of this podcast is uh, we'd love to hear about your wacky things. So if you have wacky things, go on to our website at usualpets.com. There's a place there where you can comment to your heart's intent and get on there and tell us about your wacky things. We might just evolve that and turn it into something else here on this podcast. And that's the interactive beauty of it. And that's about as far as we can really reach in terms of being interactive here. 
But we created that avenue to actually do that. And I promise that if you do that, we will approach it in a playful way. That's excellent. That's a good way to end this uh, episode. I think so too. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Richard. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to Usual Pets on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also leave a comment at usualpets.com. If you would like to support Usual Pets, please consider becoming a patron and head over to the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash usual pets. Music for this podcast has been composed and performed by Gilbert and Cairns. Music